Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. I'm so happy to be here. The day's been really lovely for me so far. I hope it has been, yeah, for you too. Um, Of course, uh, because it's a a one-day workshop together, my intention is just to offer you lots of um, tips and and angles on practice. Um, So you can take them to whatever your your form of practice is. What I'd like to do now, especially since many of us are digesting uh, Vietnamese food, (laughs) um, is just talk a little bit about the view that um, can be behind our practice. Everything we do uh, always has a view. Mostly the view is unconscious. So I think it's good to get clear on, you know, what we're aiming at when we're practicing. I'm reminded of being in the heat. When I was younger, uh, I, I was a, um, a student of a teacher named Patabi Joyce. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, the way we, Patabi Joyce wanted people to practice was before you uh, practice, you have a bath, so you're clean. And so he wanted people to be bathed before uh, they practice. And then during practice, you'd get pretty sweaty. Um, Especially if you were practicing in India, you get pretty sweaty. And then after uh, you're sweaty, and he said you should never have more than 72,000 drops of sweat. (laughs) So next time you're in a moksha class, there should be someone counting to stop the people after 72,000. But he used the term 72,000 for everything. So you know how many bones were in the body? (laughs) 72,000. Do you know how many breaths you have in a day? 72,000. He thought that when you're practicing and after you practice, um, it's really important to take the sweat that comes out of your body and to rub it back into your body. Um, so you would rub all the sweat in, and then after the um, uh, after you sleep the next day, then you would have a bath, and then you would um, practice. So that the bathing happens before the practice, so you're kind of purified for the practice. And it's interesting, because if you go to Scandinavia, and you, uh, uh, some of my family's in Scandinavia, uh, my in-laws' family. And um, so I've been learning about sauna culture. And in sauna culture, this is what you do. You don't bathe after a sauna. All that sweat you put back into the the body. Um, But I used to always think that this was like a, literal teaching and also kind of a more metaphorical teaching, which is that whatever's coming up in our practice, uh, our job is to take it and uh, bring it back into our bodies. 
And of course, I think all of us know that usually uh, when we have um, <clears throat> the stuff that comes up in life, that comes up in all of our lives, uh, arise, um, our tendency is not uh, to put it back into our body again. We want to somehow get rid of it and move on. Here's what the Buddha says. For a long time, you have experienced the death of a father, the death of a brother, the death of a sister, the death of a son or a daughter, the loss of relatives and friends, the loss of wealth, loss through illness. As you have experienced these losses, crying and wailing, because you've been united with what is disagreeable and separated from what gives you pleasure, the stream of tears that you've cried is more than the water in the four great oceans. This is enough to experience revulsion towards things, then enough to become less entangled in craving, and then enough to be liberated. A really interesting flip at the end. So you've experienced um, impermanence. To sum it up, right? You experience um, the way that everything you try and hold onto uh, changes. All of us experience this every day. All of us experience this in different degrees, and. Um, because of this, you then have revulsion towards things. That's one way, right? I think a lot of us, when we first start some kind of spiritual practice, we're like, I'm going to practice because I don't want to be involved in things. <laughs> I'm going to practice because I don't want to be entangled anymore in the impermanence of things. Because they're unreliable. That's another way of translating impermanence, is unreliability. That the things we hold on to and lean on for stability are ultimately unreliable. So one way we relate to that is, oh, okay, then I'm just not going to rely on anything. Has anyone tried this? <laughs> I'm, just not, I'm not going to rely on anything. Um, then, a second phase is, oh, what if I was just less entangled, I love that term, less entangled in the craving for things? What if I started working more on the way that I constantly crave? And you can fill in however that sentence ends, moment to moment. And then the last uh, piece there in that paragraph, which I really love, is maybe all of this impermanence, maybe all of this change and um, inconstancy um, might give rise to a spirit in me that wants to be liberated, that wants to follow a path of freedom, a path of liberation. And I think it's this uh, desire to uh, wake up that is uh, descriptive of this path, the beginning of this path of liberation. So I'm here to sell movement and stillness because I actually think if you're really interested in how your mind works when it comes to uh, entanglements, when it comes to cravings, when it comes to working with habits in your own heart, then sometimes you need to actually just sit down and really look at your mind and how it functions. And when I say mind, I'm talking about an embodied cognition, not a mind that's like in your head. I'm talking about a mind that's also your heart, uh, the intelligence of your body, that's somatically based.
And when you look closely at your mind, you're looking closely at your life. And your life is never one thing. It's always in motion, like water. Water in a cup is not the same as water in the ocean. In different conditions, the water changes, just like your life. Some conditions give rise to joy. Some conditions give rise to uh, peace. And some conditions give rise to uh, jealousy or uh, envy or being unsatisfied. But uh, from uh, the perspective of yoga and Buddhist teachings, nothing exists independent of conditions. There's a really, really fundamental teaching, which is that everything that arises always arises in conditions. Nothing arises by itself. So if you're someone who struggles with moods, for example, this is really important to see that, that moods arise in conditions. What are the conditions? Diet, the environment, how many emails are in your inbox, genetics, um, stress at work, unemployment. Like All of these things give rise to certain moods. And if some of those conditions are not present, the moods go back to something more neutral. And you think of more afflictive emotions like anger, right? Anger arises when certain conditions are present. And when those conditions are, or some of those conditions are not present, it's a different mood altogether. It's a different mood altogether. So in other words, Paying attention to what's happening in present experience is paying attention to something that's always changing. Your life is always changing. You're always changing. And part of our practice is to have the stability to be able to see this change and be in this change without being swept away by every change. And most of us, because we're distracted so much of the day, I hope you're seeing that today, because there's so much distraction, because the body is asleep sometimes, because there are certain um, uh, habits that we have that prevent us from meeting what's happening in the moment, um, not only are we missing our lives, but we're not resilient because we completely fall apart when things change. Or we get really tight when things change and get defensive. So, I want to share a story uh, from the Zen tradition. And um, the reason why I like telling these old Zen stories is because uh, unlike the Yoga Sutras or some of the early Buddhist Sutras, um, Zen teachings mostly are stories about relationships. Relationships about, you know, that have, like, stories about people in relationship who are practicing. And I, I really love those stories because you get a sense not just of the people, um, but also how people were moved by one another's practice. So you hear in these stories, like, oh, that's how that person was practicing, and that's how it affected this other individual. And sometimes the stories are teacher-teacher, sometimes they're teacher-student, sometimes they're student-student. They're really wonderful. So uh, this is a story from the 8th century um, of Mazu and Nangaku. The teacher hears that... Um, there's a very serious student practicing in a monastery on the next mountain. So the teacher goes down the mountain pass, climbs up. This could be like a couple days. Climbs up to go visit the next mountain uh, to go see the student. Now I'll just stop the story there. That's very rare. Usually it's inverted, right? Mm -hmm. Usually the teacher here, the student hears there's this great teacher. They go, but here 
the teacher hears that there's this really serious student and the teacher's leaving to go check out this student. Could you imagine this? Yes. Like there's a teacher here and the teacher hears, oh, there's this amazing student practicing at one yoga. And then, you know, Darcy like walks all the way down to one <laughs> yoga. Anyways, this teacher travels uh, from his temple across this mountain pass to visit this other student. And he finds a young man sitting in the meditation posture, meditating. So he sits down next to him and turns to him and says, um, what are you doing sitting in meditation all this time? It's like a test question. What are you doing? What kind of practice are you doing? What are you doing? And Mazu, the student, responds, I'm becoming a Buddha. The teacher says, huh. And then picks up a rock and starts polishing it. Just like this. And then the student looks at him and says, what are you doing? And the teacher says, uh, I'm polishing a tile. And the teacher says, Sorry, the student says, how can you possibly make a tile out of a rock? And the teacher says, how can you possibly make a Buddha out of a person? <laughs> how can you possibly make a tile out of a rock? And this clever twist. How can you make a Buddha out of a person? So I really love this. So this story is about how we can't use our practice uh, to become something else. We can't use our practice to become something that we're not. We're using our practice to discover that we're already a Buddha. Buddha just means someone who's awake. Sometimes uh, we come into practice and we don't realize that we've got this intention that's driving the show. And the intention is first to lose some weight, then the intention is to get more flexible hamstrings, then the intention is maybe not to be so lonely and to meet somebody here in the moksha room that's better than your current spouse. <laughs> <laughs> Thinner, anyways. Um, and then, like, we go through all these phases. And if we don't have teachings that remind us what some of the deeper motivations could or might be, we get sidetracked. And we just get into this, like, small-minded thinking about practicing just because I'm trying to get somewhere or get something. And this teacher came to see this student and picked up right away on this. That the student seems like a really good student. There's no doubt about that. But he's testing him in this sideways angle, which is, what's not, you know, what are you doing in your practice? And he hears that the student is trying to be something, is trying to become a Buddha. And how subtle for the teacher to pick up on that, right? So the teacher starts polishing. What are you doing? Oh, I'm trying to make this rock into a tile. You can't make a person into a Buddha because every single person is a Buddha. Isn't this the thing we all know about addiction and trauma and strange symptoms like psychosomatic symptoms we come across with people that that all of these symptoms that every single person struggles with in various degrees are all movements of the human organism to find a way to heal, to be whole, to be awake, to be connected, even though sometimes they seem so perverted. It's easy to dismiss fentanyl. Oh, that's the thing those people do, you know. 
and you have like an idea of who those people are. You have an idea of what that thing is. But there are so many ways we try and come to terms with the suffering of change. Numbing ourselves, running away from our bodies, abusing our bodies because we can't feel them. And sometimes uh, we forget in our practice that we're already awake. And practice is just refining that. Shinru Suzuki used to say, um, you're already perfect just the way you are. And there's room for a little improvement. (laughs) Anyways, there's a little more to the story. The student responds and then says, I don't really understand. That's a fair. I don't really understand. And the teacher says, being awake has no form. Being awake has no form. Meditation posture is not the form. The Buddha is not the form. Has no form. Being awake is being awake. The awareness, the quality of awareness in being awake doesn't have any form. And this is such a paradox. So, if you're listening to how I'm teaching, to be able to sit and really let go of your preoccupations and experience a more stable awareness requires precision, requires some form. And yet the awareness, stable awareness, doesn't really have form. Doesn't really have any form. And as soon as you think you know what it is, it's not it. So the way we practice is what uh, we call no gaining idea. You practice, but without having any idea of gain. And I encourage you to examine your intentions when you practice and see what it's like to practice with no gaining idea. It's one of the shadows of having um, teachers who have uh, mobility. Because if I demonstrate something, you now have a picture in your mind. Oh, that's what the pose should look like. Even though I never said that. (laughs) I'm just showing you some movement, process of movement. That's my genetics and my many years of practice and many, many other factors. What's your experience? And when you're one with your experience, and there's no separate you needing something from that experience, then that's Buddha. That's being awake. That's yoga. You see? When you're in your own experience, and this is the path of yoga that is the most difficult, is you giving yourself permission to be in your own experience. Your own experience. And when you're fully in your experience, and there isn't a separate you outside of that experience, then mind and heart and body are all lined up. And that's what we're doing in meditation practice. I think many people here know what that's like in the movement practice. I hope. But when we get still, it's different than the asana practice. Because in the stillness, we see the movements of the mind so much clearer. And we see our levels of reactivity. And we feel anxiety. Or we feel irritability. Or we, we feel distress. Or we feel dissociative tendencies. 
and see them with more clarity when we're still. I remember when I first started meditating, it was just a hell realm. It really was a hell realm. And that's what motivated me to practice. I was 19, and I thought, why can't I sit still? This was like my basic question. Why can't I sit still? And then my other question was, how do you make any decisions about your life if you can't be still? Those were my two main questions. So we're these unique selves. Everyone here has their question. Um, but this specific unique self is not the only self. There's also a universal self. You can feel it sometimes when you are quiet and you calm down and you're not so congealed in your like version of everything. You can feel that there's a larger more universal sense of yourself that's more inclusive and more porous that moves through, that pours through. And you can't say what it is. As soon as you say what it is, it's not what it is. And you can't try and get, this is the biggest problem, so you can't try and get from the personal self to the universal self. Can't do it. Have you ever tried to do this? Now I'm going to connect with the universal self, and suddenly you just feel really small <laughs> and kind of neurotic of it, you know. Why? Because you can't make a rock into a tile. You can't make a person into a Buddha. So what you do is you just keep blending with your breath. You keep harmonizing your awareness with your breathing. I try and do this all day. Harmonize my breathing with what's happening. And then what happens is this universal sense of self starts to come through. But you can't make it happen. You just have to keep doing practice. And our practice is called mindfulness. And mindfulness is to keep blending our attention, our breathing, and what's happening all together. Mixing it up. And I'm sharing this so that you're able to get the position from which to practice. Or find a position from which to practice. No gaming idea. You're already awake. And so you practice because you're awake. You don't practice to be awake. You practice because you're awake. And you're just refining it. If you try and practice to be awake, it won't work. Because, because you're trying, you see, you're trying to get something. And in trying to get something, you're reinforcing me trying to get something. It's not peaceful. Even if what you want is peace, you can't get it. Here's what Suzuki Roshi says. In meditation, we do not try and stop thinking. Isn't that good to hear? <laughs> We do not try and listen or hear anything. If something appears in your mind, leave it. The question I have is, what is, the, what, what is it that's leaving it? <laughs> if you hear something, he says, you should hear it and just accept it. It may be good to be concentrated on something, but to have good concentrated mind is not meditation. 
That's interesting. Good concentrated mind, he says again, is not meditation. So if you sit and you're like, I'm going to do what Michael says, I'm only going to follow my breath. And you're like working, like to just stay on your breathing. Come on, I know lots of you are doing this. <laughs> He's saying that's not meditation. You're tr- it's, trying, it's trying to gain something. You see how subtle that is? So he's saying this. Feel your breathing. Just feel how your breath comes in and out. Go to the beach. Go to the beach. Take an orange umbrella. Put it up. Sit down. Watch the waves come in. Watch them go. Hear the sounds. Feel the sun on your body. That's how you meditate. Okay? Sit down. Imagine I have an orange umbrella. Okay? And the waves are my breathing. Just feel the breath coming in and out of the body. And I don't get too on top of it. Like, oh, I'm trying to concentrate. You don't do that. You just feel the breath coming through your body. You may have noticed that when I sit, I keep my thumb and index finger touching. Some of you have been trained in this mudra also, where your thumbs touch. Let's try that. Thumb and index finger. Very, very, very lightly. The reason why we do this is because uh, when you're sitting, if you space out, guess what happens to your fingers? Yeah, they come apart a little bit. Yeah. I showed him it. <laughs> I thought it might help. And if you're and if you're trying too hard, if you're trying to concentrate, your fingers will press together just a little bit. So this is a really good mudra when you're sitting. It's just to kind of watch that. So just think about that. If you're saying to yourself, I'm going to make my mind calm. (laughs) Do you think you're going to calm your mind? No. But if you go to your breathing, I'm going to stay connected to my breathing. What do you think the byproduct is? Calmness. Why? Because remember everything arises in conditions? So you can't make something arise. All you can do is create the conditions. Create the conditions. I want my son, who turned four on Wednesday, to be really happy on his birthday party. Can I make my son happy on his birthday party? No. But can I organize the conditions to possibly allow for happiness? Yes. So I listen closely what he wants. He wants... Only three friends. Turns out only two of them like actually exist. (laughs) But anyways, we made cards for all of them. Yeah. Um, And uh, he wants a yellow magic school bus cake. Birthday cake. So... At 11 o'clock on Tuesday night, I was making a magic school bus birthday cake. To create the conditions for his happiness. You should have seen his face. When he came down the next morning, and there was a magic school bus birthday cake. It was like, because we create the conditions for another person's happiness. We can't create another person's happiness. Impossible. Or you might say, I'm going to make my life better by... You tried this one? <laughs> then there's a my life, and I'm on a me over here. That's that separation that we're trying to bind. 
So just keep watching what's arising, keep feeling your breath, don't try and become a Buddha, because that's like trying to get from the small self to a universal self. And then let go of the usual way you relate to your mind. Some of you know that I do a lot of work in the uh, medical world. Uh, psychiatry, psychology, psychotherapy. And it's so interesting how, you know, just so many people in that world are really fascinated with meditation practice. Like personally, really interested in meditation practice. And it seems the one place where a snag shows up is in is right here at this point where they wanna they wanna work with their mind, but while they're meditating and feeling their breath, they're still being psychological with themselves. So like they'll feel something in their body and they'll start relating it to something that happened in the week, and they'll get like kind of really interested in the the psychology of like sensations or something. And then they're not meditating anymore. And then the period ends and they're like, oh, that was good, I felt calmer. But they're not really having much insight because they're so used to really being um, um, analytical, psychological with the material that's there. What we're interested in is staying with our breathing, and when stuff comes up, we just meet it gently, we come back again to our breathing. And we don't go off into like an archeology span uh, expedition into where any of that came from or what it might be related to. We just keep putting the mind and heart right in that moment, just paying attention. I wanted to share with you a, a quote that I can't seem to find. There it is. Here's what Trungpa Rinpoche says. Sit and do nothing. Isn't, I, should, I could just stop there. <laughs> Sit and don't do anything. Just don't do anything. Are you hearing this message about this relaxed breath? And what you're doing is just kind of like maintaining what you need to be in the posture, calmness and tranquility but not doing anything. So here's what he says, sit and do nothing. Every once in a while, a golden fish swims by and lays her golden eggs. You'll know. Let me say it again. Sit and do nothing. And every once in a while, a golden fish will swim by and lay her golden eggs. You'll know. So, sit still, and every once in a while, you'll be sitting, and you'll have an insight. Oh, oh, I didn't see it at all from that perspective. So it's like you have to clear away, and clear away, and clear away, and then, oh, got it. I didn't see it at all like that. It's like, you know, when you have a friend and they're so stuck in a viewpoint and you're like trying everything you can to just try and help them see another angle and nothing works. Yeah. And then they go to like a spa for 40 days. <laughs> and then they come back and they're like, God, you know, I, you know, this one day I was in a float tank for the ninth time that day. And then suddenly I realized, and then they say the sentence that you'd been saying for like three years. And they're like, and something really shifted. <laughs> I've been telling you that. Yeah. What's the matter with you? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you can't really work on this unique self, this peculiar 
version of yourself without a larger space that I'm calling the universal self. And you can't recognize this larger sense of self without the peculiarity of the small self, you see? So you need to honor your neurotic habits because they are the doorway into a larger sense of who you are. I think of this when I see fish jumping or whales. It's like you have this air world and you have this water world. And it's like, I sometimes imagine like fish are like stitching them together. It's like they come out, they come back in. It's like there's an invisible thread that's stitching those worlds together. And meditation is like that too. There's this larger sense of who we all are and our interconnectedness. And it's stitched together through careful attention to the present moment. And the present moment is always experienced by this peculiar, habitual, narrow me that like has so much bias and loves the past and the future. So, if you're a kind of adventure type, you're going to love meditation. Because you can use mindfulness practice and have so many adventures. If you're an introverted type who likes protection and inwardness, and that's what you need, you're going to love meditation. Because it can be so introverted and can really help you protect yourself. Um, if you're into um, deep, sustained states of calm, you're going to love meditation. Because you can access really deep and sustained um, periods of calmness. If you're aging, if you're dying, which is every single one of us in this room, you're going to love meditation. <laughs> because meditation is really good for showing you your resentment and your anger so that when you die, as you're dying, you can let go of some of your resentments. If you've ever been with someone who's dying, who has a lot of resentment, there's so much suffering. Their heart and their body are letting go, and they're like still holding on to anger, family feuds, fighting about estates, exes. So when water is congealed into ice, it's so tight, it's so tight. And slowly, uh, there's a possibility for that ice to melt. And that's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. It's so simple. I can put a lot of words around this practice. Oh, I do, actually. <laughs> but all of that is like to help get us focused on what we're doing. You don't have to become anything other than you are. But what you do need to do is to use practice to fully be who you are. And that means to breathe with your habits, your irritability, your frustration, your grief, whatever it is that's there. 
for a lot of students, I, I notice when they speak to me privately, one of the things that a lot of people are really freaked out about is just making mistakes. Like doing it wrong. So I hope you fuck up, like royally, in front of other people. And then you watch what happens in yourself around it. Because usually that's a greater mess up. Like I really hope you all make a huge mistake in front of other people. Because that's how you learn. And then you start to see, God, there's so much energy that goes into all the after effect of the mistake. And then most people didn't even really care about the mistake. One of the traditions I trained in is the Zen tradition. In the Zen tradition, there are like rules about which foot comes through the door first when you step into a room. And the, the rules change depending on who's coming towards the door. <laughs> so there's actually no like one rule about it. It's, it's always in motion. And then when you come in the door, you only take one step and then you bow. And then there's a direction you walk in the room and then you bow to your cushion and then you bow to the sangha and then you sit down. And when you sit down, there are some people you bow to when they come in the room, some people you don't bow to. And then there's rules for the timekeepers. I was brought up in a Jewish tradition. In the Jewish tradition, there's a prayer for washing your hands, there's a prayer for eating bread, there's a prayer for drinking wine, there's a prayer for lighting candles, that you can't like do anything <laughs> without like a prayer. Yeah. And then you go to someone else's house who have the same lineage, same tradition, but they're from another country, and the prayer is just like a little different. Or the tune is different. And on the surface, you may be one of these people who's like, oh God, I'm not into all of that. I'm not into ritual. Why aren't you into ritual? And then it turns out, hey, you know, the ritual is actually just another practice to keep you awake. When you come into this room, how do you roll out your mat? How do you put away your mat? How do you line up your shoes? What do you do with your cell phone? Like all of these details, it's all ritual. And with the attitude of mindfulness, you're using all of these rituals to be awake. A teacher hears, actually just one story came to me. Let me tell one story and then I'm gonna end. Which is, um, there's a teacher on an island near here named Peter Levitt who's a Zen teacher and a translator. And um, back in the day, he was a server. There's a special way you eat in the Zen uh, retreats called Oriyoki, where you, you basically sit on your cushion and then when it's time to eat, just everybody gets bowls and there's a ritual around it. And then there are servers who come in and when you come in the door as a server, you lift the bowl you're carrying up very high, and then you bow, and then you come back up, and then you bring it in, and then you serve people. And um, Peter told me this funny story about how when he was on retreat as a young man, he came in right in front of his teacher, lifted up the bowl, bowed, and just as he was bowing, his pants fell down. <laughs> <laughs> And when I heard that story, I thought, I could probably make any mistake now. <laughs> that is probably the most embarrassing. Yeah. A teacher hears there's a very serious student, and he travels from his temple down a mountain pass to go to this other temple where the student's sitting. Can you picture this? 
student sitting in meditation and the teacher comes up to him. What are you doing there, sitting in meditation all the time? I'm becoming a Buddha. Nangaku says, huh. I love these details. Huh. He sits down and starts polishing a rock. The student looks at him and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm polishing a tile. How can you possibly make a tile out of a rock? The teacher says to Mazu, how can you make a Buddha out of a person? have to embody this somehow. <laughs> so easy to hear these teachings, isn't it? Like, oh, yeah. That, <laughs> that's totally my philosophy. <laughs> so maybe we can just spend a few minutes just seeing if there's any questions or comments that have come up around this, and then we're going to uh, do some more practice together for the remainder of our afternoon. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.